Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to Season 7 of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Aaron Chauvin. Aaron is an esteemed disputes and compliance lawyer with a specialization in fraud and financial crime. With nearly two decades of experience, Aaron has assisted a wide array of clients, from housing associations to fintech businesses in recovering assets and combating all things fraud. He's not just any lawyer, Aaron is an award-winning founder of Tenant Law, a disruptively innovative firm that challenges conventional norms by focusing on reducing fraud's societal impact and enabling lawyers to thrive without the constraints of billable targets or office presenteeism. In recognition of his groundbreaking work, he has been named the Transformation Leader of 2023 by the Business Desk Awards and a Reisman Award winner for excellent in-client service at ClioCon 2023. Beyond the courtroom and boardroom, Aaron is also a sought-after conference speaker and media contributor, frequently sharing his expertise on platforms such as the BBC, The Times and The Guardian and many more. Whether it's discussing procurement fraud, cyber risk or the evolving culture in law firms, Aaron is a thought leader whose insights are not to be missed. So with that in mind, a very warm welcome, Aaron. Hey, Rob. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm super excited about this interview. And before we dive into all your amazing project experiences, I just told you off air, we have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality of the law if you've seen it? I'm really embarrassed to say I haven't seen it. And lots of people in the firm say, why haven't I seen it? And I just say I'm old. <laughs> but if he talks about LA Law or Ali McBeal, I was there all day long. Yeah, there we go. With that, I think we'll give it a fair zero and move swiftly on to talk more all about you. So do you mind telling our listeners a bit about your background and career journey? Yeah, sure. So I've been practicing law for, well, I qualified in 2002. I started in a regional firm in the Midlands in Birmingham. I worked my way, so I qualified 2002, worked my way to partner pretty quickly, 2007, eight. I left that firm, moved to a firm called Cobbitts, which was taken over by DWF. Uh, um, I ran a fraud and risk and litigation team for Cobbitts and DWF, uh, headed that up, made partner, and then in 2015 decided I want to leave and do my own thing. And I started Tenet in 2016. Yeah, and that's been a huge success story, which we're going to talk about. You know, and I've been a big fan of what you've been, been doing, and we've been lucky enough to uh, be involved in a few events together in the legal world, which has been great. But your career, you know, spanning over 20 years in legal profession is, is focused largely in fraud and financial crimes. What motivated you to particularly specialize in that area? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I think if you take a step back and you think about when you're giving people career advice and you hear a lot of people now telling, you know, the story could be anything you want to be or you could, you know, follow your heart, follow your passion. And interestingly, that's really what I've come back to. I, when I was growing up, it was very much the early Indiana Jones films. It was investigation stuff. And I just always liked solving problems. I'd like to just dig around, understand a problem. And when I did my training contract, I did a seat in crime for six months. But I really enjoyed the fraud criminal um, investigations we did there. And I fell into it when we got in. I ended up doing uh, civil litigation. I became a commercial litigator. And every time there was a dishonesty claim, a fraud claim, I just got leverage. I went to that. So... I decided in 2008 that it was an area to focus on. The firm didn't have a focus area on it, the firm I was at, at the time. There wasn't a firm in the Midlands in England doing that. And so the story started there and yeah, I've not looked back since. 
No, and, and let's pick up on the success story then. And one thing I admire, and I, I sort of relate to this, is you're a partner in a firm. It's very easy just to stay there, right? And just kind of go through. But you wanted to take the entrepreneurial plunge. You started your own firm. Talk us through the pivotal moments that led you to make that decision. Yeah, I, I don't want anybody to think it was a brave decision or I was a courageous lawyer. But the reality is we can talk about mental health a lot more openly now than maybe even seven, eight years ago. So I was a tough case in my life at that time. So my, my, I've got one sister. She's 10 years older. She lives in Australia. And uh, I had my parents who lived about 10 miles away. My dad was pretty unwell. He had heart issues, dialysis, fair, you know, he, he seemed to have it. And he was in and out of hospital a lot from 2014 through to 2016. I'll explain that in a moment. And I was back and forth. But at the same time, you'll appreciate this. I've got, I had a young family at the time. My boys were two and six. A wife who was amazing, but I was running around after my, like, the job, then going to the hospital. And I'd find I'd be logging on at night just trying to make good the time and then throw into a little extra my kids went to nursery on a thursday and a friday and i did the drop off and i did the pickup so i had the last in feeling and the first out feeling at work and i i think i just you know i got to a point where i i, I guess i broke i was burnt out i just felt i couldn't give the best of me to any facet in my life and i wanted to take some control and i was doing a lot of management more management type of work as well and i just wanted to be a lawyer again and i just wanted autonomy and control and i'll end on this point it's, you know people say it's a risk to leave what was a, a, a good income. My wife was part-time as a pharmacist, the young kid. But I always said the biggest risk was my wife backing me because she doesn't know the law. She doesn't know how we get work. She doesn't know how you get a referral or, you know, how it comes in. But she knew I was pretty broken. And she said, look, if you, this is going to make you happy, go for it. I think in my head, I knew if I could probably get a job, hopefully, fingers crossed. And yeah, that's what led to starting the firm. And thank you for being, you know, that's refreshingly open because that's only going to help so many other people that may be unfortunate situation, you know, because, you know, it is important and it's something we talk a lot about the show. We talk about a lot of different topics, but mental health and well-being and looking after yourself is so, so important because the legal industry is is challenging, right? It's, 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 it's a tough place. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk us through that journey. Um, let's talk about some of the media because you've been everywhere. You're a conference speaker, you're a media contributor, you're on the BBC. I mean, we're, we're tuning in now from Clio Card in Nashville. How has all of this public exposure impacted your legal practice and of course your firm? I've just, I've just listened to what you just said back to me and I'm like, oh my God, the pinch yourself <laughs> moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's not real. That's not really me. Yeah. The media exposure is about um, piggybacking, I suppose, on credibility. So when you start a firm um, and it was just me and a desk and a cardboard box, a bit of stationery, which I probably shouldn't have taken from DWF, but you know, hey, <laughs> yeah. it's six years. They can't come after me now. They'll get over it. They'll get over it. No, I'm still friends with them, so it's good. Um, you don't have any expectations beyond got to graft and I've got to find my first client and I've got to find my second client and I've got to make sure I deliver for that client and then deliver for the next. But I think it's always important in whatever perspective you take in your career, and I've, obviously I've brought in financial crime, immerse yourself in your subject. And, I'm, and by immersing myself in the subject, I, I got into good networks of people who would recommend me for things. So I sit on the board of a charity called the Fraud Advisory Panel. It's a big counter-fraud charity based out of London. Uh, on the board are some stellar people, heads of the City of London Police, the, the, the chair currently is the ex-head of the Serious Fraud Office, and there was little old me. And I sat on there, and, but, and one of them recommended me to the BBC to help on some research in 2016. I said, sure. And then they asked me on the show, and I'll tie this back to something. They asked me on the show to do a live show on the 12th of October, 2016. And I was seven months into the job. What I didn't say earlier is, 
when I started Tenet, in my notice period from DWF, my dad passed away. And it was serendipitous that the first TV appearance was on my, would have been my dad's birthday. I haven't told many people that, actually. And it was just a seminal moment. I, I went on, I thought it was a one-time thing, and I, I gave my all to it. I immersed myself in the subject. And then they came back and that was rip off Britain. And then they came back and then people who worked on that show worked on Panorama or Watchdog. They came back. Then they recommended me to the news channel. They came back and Sky News have been in touch. Channel 4 have been in touch. I've done stuff for other news channels, radio. Then you get conference speak and it's, but I immerse myself in my subject. And if someone asks me to speak and they think they'll give up their time to allow me to talk about something, I give it a hundred percent as much as I'll give it for a client. You know, it's really important to share education. It's one of our purposes. It's sharing education about fraud. So, and it has elevated the firm in a way that when you're a small firm and you're starting, you need to build on the credibility of your partners. And the fact that we were with the BBC and done other areas of conferences, it gave some credibility. So for example, Clio, a huge credibility for having spoken like with you at Clio events in London. It's, it's a massive thing. And that's certainly something to recommend. Immerse yourself in your subject. Yeah, and you're a wonderful speaker, fabulous communicator, and you're right, this sort of credibility you establish. Just want to you've kind of answered the question, but I just want to grind down on it because you've gained, you know, for example, the postgraduate diploma in financial crime compliance. You know, you've really invested. So how does this academic expertise add value to your legal practice, particularly in the compliance work or maybe for fintech and housing associates and beyond? Yeah, so I, I not only do I tell my wife I want to jack in my job, which is I main source of income i also said i want to throw like six grand at a qualification uh, because i'm gonna have time on my hands right and so i did that in the first year i set up and um it became a bit of a juggle because work got busy um but it i think it did set me apart a i was brave enough to invest in myself b it was a differentiator i think i was the first to take that qualification for a practicing lawyer to be a, apparently a compliance professional that's what i was called so it gave me a route into sort of banks and talking about banks, which is a lot of the media work, but it gave me some credibility. And again, it was the credibility of the International Compliance Association where I got the qualification. But learning from that qualification, which was heavily on the banking sector, allowed me to take best practice from banking sector into less mature sectors on dealing with fraud, housing associations, charities. Again, just immersing myself in the subject and it just cascades into other areas. Um, and that's led to the credibility of the practices. And that leads nicely on to what I was going to talk next. So I want to talk more about Tenant. I think it's a fantastic success story. And look, you're still on the journey as well, you know, so it's achieved a hell of a lot very early on because you've been recognized for a, an innovative approach to legal practice. And explaining that is because the philosophy is behind running the firm without financial and billable hour targets. And what a lot of the traditional firms are still end on doing, you know, you flip the script. So tell us a bit more behind why that's the philosophy of your firm okay so i would love to sit here and say this was a great design <laughs> and i'd map this out and i thought i'm going to disrupt the world um but it was nothing like that i was a balanced lawyer at dwf i had a chip on both shoulders rob i had a chip <laughs> on my shoulder about kpis and i had a chip on my shoulder about pre presenteeism last in first out on the nursery run days and even though nobody said anything to me i always felt that you know, you needed to be there more often. And that's not that practice. I think it's a cross-all practice. As I say, I, I have a good relationship with DWF and my former boss there. The, the KPIs to me was, I realized that if you have me focusing on things which aren't the client and the client's problem, hey, look, our job is to give people peace of mind, right? Yeah. Solve problems, give people peace of mind. If you give me something to distract from that, I'm not going to do the best job. 
Yeah. And one of those distractions are, I've got to hit this number this month. Yeah. And I've got to hit this number, even though it might mean my colleague over there can't hit the number. Yeah. But even though we're in the team together. Yeah. And that, that had some tension, right? So we, we fast forward to 2016. I start, we're getting some work in. Um, I need some support. My, I'm, like, I'm talking to my wife, who's not a lawyer. And, you know, she, she, she'll come up in this podcast a few times as, as my rock, really. And she, I was like, she says, oh, what about the people you work with? The ones who've gone on maternity leave, the mums at the school gates who can't get a job back in like big law. Anybody you know? And I thought, oh, it's a colleague, Esther, Esther Phillips. And she, I approached her. She lived in Nottingham. We were in Birmingham. She hadn't worked for four years. And her story was, I was giving up on getting back into law. I was going to, I'm applying to get a job at Tesco. Nothing wrong with that. But her skills would have been wasted. She's an amazing lawyer. And I said, no, come on, let's just try some work. How's it going to work? I'm going to, she said, I have to work in the evenings. So I was like, that's fine. Um, can't come to the office. I said, that's fine. I just want you to deliver the work. And then snowball from there. And what we've soon realized is as I recruited, um, if I took away chargeable hours, chargeable financial targets, and presenteeism, in fact, essentially what I did for most customer journeys, the way it should be is, I did it for our people. I focused on our people first. I made it a frictionless environment. That, what do you need to do your job well? I don't need these distractions. I just need to focus on the product. And so that's what we did. And I didn't. And it it was trust based, but it worked. And more people joined. We've had it's strange. All our lawyers have come from firms which are uh, national or international firms. We've had five years' experience in those firms. So they all can handle themselves working from home or in the office. But if I'm not around, they don't need to learn by osmosis. And the model sticks off and we prove we can run a litigation practice, some compliance work, but predominantly litigation practice without targets. We have a global team target. Everybody has transparency on what our overheads are apart from each other's salary. Um, they know a global number and we communicate and it works. It works fantastically well. Let, let's pick up on the, the model because you, you mentioned it there, but what was the catalyst for that low overhead model and how has it allowed you to offer more cost-effective solutions without compromising the quality? Okay, so the, the low the low cost model was that that was by design. Um, You'll give yourself that one. I'll give myself that one. I wanted to be the space in between the big firms that had specialist um, civil fraud lawyers and the general smaller firms that had a litigation team who would dabble in civil fraud work. And I thought there is a space in between, which is an ex- which is a place where law can this area of law can be accessible to individuals and SMEs. Charities, housing, or associations, but you know, the not for profit sector as well, but mainly SMEs and individuals. That was my target. And to do that, I thought, well, how do we do that in terms of accessibility? It's about reducing costs. And some law firms will reduce costs, but retain the extra profit they make. Our view was like, let's just move the margins, everything down a bit. If we can run a lower cost model, we'll just pass those savings on and our hourly rates to clients. And that's all we did. So, you know, I was, you know, we're here at ClioCon. Uh, I demoed Clio in February of 2016. It was the third, first cloud-based software. No server, no annual license. I don't do a pitch to Clio, on. I really. We could switch on and switch off. And it was a low-cost model, and it was so flexible. And that inspired me for every bit of other software we got. It was always low-cost. And then we realized we didn't need a big office because we trust people who work from home. Hey, it's frictionless. And then we've always remained that, that model where we're probably about two-thirds of the rate of where we would be if we're in our old national or international firms. Yeah. Now, and I think you've really got onto something, particularly in the area of the market you're, you're, you're taking there. Time for a short break from the show. 
Are you still relying on spreadsheets to manage your legal matters? There's a better way to work. Our sponsor, Clio, is the cloud-based legal software that will transform the way your law firm operates. They offer legal practice management and client onboarding software that doesn't cost the earth. In fact, from as little as £49 per month, you can cut out all of those tedious admin tasks that you dread doing each week, each month. Automate the boring stuff, free up more time for the important stuff, that's what you get with Clio. Your clients will thank you for it, your bank account will thank you for it, your colleagues will thank you for it, and you can even thank me later for telling you all about it. So head to clio.com forward slash legally speaking to see how Clio can help you. That's C-L-I-O dot com forward slash legally speaking. Now back to the show. Tell us a little bit more about maybe some of the client success stories. You know, what does the work look like across different sectors? Any interesting case studies or, as I say, client stories that really stick in your mind that you'd like to share? Oh, well, yeah, we've had a, we've had a few good, good stories. We've had, well, let me, let me take, let me pick an individual, an SME, and a, a, a large company, right? Because fraud is indiscriminate. It'll impact everybody. And it's a leveler. You know, people come down to earth and you know, we're all human and we have to speed and railway. So I remember an individual, those are the early days where cybercrime was kicking off on property transactions. And she was purchasing a property with cash savings for over, well, between four and 500,000 in London. First purchase, she was just over 40 years old. And she diverted the money unbeknownst to her to a bank account in Hong Kong, right? So she didn't know, because having not done a property transaction before, that when you, you pay your lawyers, criminals intercepted the emails between her and a lawyer, pretended to be the lawyers. The lawyers never talked her through the process. And she sent all the completion funds to this bank account. And all. Now, that was at a stage where no one was testing professional negligence on fraud market about should law firms be protecting their clients more from cyber? Well, we ran that claim. And we got a settlement. And a settlement, well, let, let's just say it was north of 70%. And that was a huge amp because there was no other way she was going to recover. And she was rightfully so just messed up by it all. And that was a great thing because, I mean, it was, it was a miracle recovery for her. It was like a Hail Mary pass, stick with the American terms. And that was a great thing. And it was, you know, we've helped individuals who've lost money on authorized push payment fraud with banks. We've got them. I remember one individual got 260,000 pounds back. And her son is still in touch with me to this day, four years on. He's on LinkedIn. He's always, you know, cheerleading for me. SME, I remember one business, they, they, they got themselves signed up to banking facilities through a fraudulent scheme. They were in for a million. We ran that through to a trial. We won. Um, and even with the large corporates, we've had one big corporate actually here in the US, and they, they'd lost a lot of money on a bribery issue, potentially, and um, we solved that. And what's strange is about all of the three people, they all hugged me at the end. The individuals within those businesses and the individual, they all hugged me at the end. You're not just doing a job, you're, well, you are, but you're saving and changing lives, right? These are monumental big things to go wrong for them. You know, losing half a million quid, you know, that's a lot of probably time, energy and effort someone's built up, like their overall mental health, their overall physical health. You know, when you're delivering and actually giving to help a solution, it's it's, it's you're retransforming somebody's lives. So I think a hug's the least they can do. <laughs> um, but but you're right. I think it's nice to know that you're doing such meaningful work and, and genuinely helping people. And that's obviously why you're getting all these awards, which we need to talk about. And um, so we're sat here at ClioCon and you picked up the Reisman Award for Excellence in Client Service. What does this award mean to you personally? I'm still soaking it in a bit. I mean, it's very surreal. 
but it's, it's probably a bit emotional as well. This, this means the most, and I'm not just saying it because like, we've just found out and we've won. And it's like, if you don't deliver great client service, you don't deserve to grow. If you don't get that bit right, if you don't remember what you did at law school, and we all at law school were thinking, or well, most of us, I think, were thinking at law school, you know, we want to change the world. We want to pursue justice. We want to have this moral purpose. But ultimately, we want to help people. And you, you can't help people well enough unless you get a client service bid right. And, you know, if you, if you flip the script and if you're the one getting a service from anyone, from, a, you know, someone fixing your car in the garage, a builder, you know, you're at the bank, service is everything. Service is what builds your business and your brand as well, gets you recommended. But it's what gives people peace of mind, that communication. So doing what we do, is is really important but to be recognized for it you know that was um that was surprising and yeah that's that that means a lot it means a real lot seen heard and recognized i think that's one thing that i from my career i think is 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 just an amazing feeling so i appreciate that there's a lot for you to take in because it's all happened so quickly and you know you, you know you've been flown over to to collect the award you know as one of the esteemed guests that must have its own like feeling about it itself as well but I think it's just a great journey that you, you, you've been on. And, you know, it's just a success story after a success story. Let's talk about this award and where that's going to take you. So, you know, it's certainly acknowledgement of your client-centered approach. But how will this recognition influence the firm's future strategy and operation? I'm really enjoying this interview because you're asking me really tough questions. <laughs> and I honestly haven't thought about it because... Okay. I, I remember sitting with a recruitment consultant in the first year of the firm. He said, what's the five-year plan, Aaron? I haven't got a five-year What's the one-year plan? I haven't got a one-year plan. We'll, we'll just do the work in front of us, look after the clients and get on with it. And we grew organically. We recruited when we were too busy and stretch and we keep recruiting. And what this will do for us, though, is, and it's something we haven't done with the other awards either, is it gives us a platform to go and talk to people, be it you know, accountants who've got individuals who've suffered or be it larger organizations. It gives us a platform to knock on the door of the US, which has a lot of work coming into the UK. It, it just gives us more credibility and it's probably the most credibility of an award. And you know, I'm excited for tomorrow. I don't know what it's going to bring, but it's only going to get better, right? And whatever better is. You've got a champion and support in me and I can only see it getting better. So uh, I'm really excited. I'm excited for your, your journey and I, I've loved every time we've had an opportunity to chat or collaborate. But let's, let's leave the work stuff aside. You're a human. We've talked about the human-to-human connection. When you're not in the office, what are some of the hobbies, things that keep you, you know, keep you on the keep you on the ground? When you've got all this great success going on, what are some of the things that you just like? Oh, I'd love to do that and just chill out. When you get that spare moment? Yeah, it's um, you know, this will, let's go with the, the the least exciting stuff. I have an allotment. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I've had an allotment for 15 years, and I'll uh, yeah, we'll I'll dig the allotment and grow some stuff every year. Has it been as successful in the allotment as it is in the law world? Yeah, you know, the, the, the irony, when, before I moved to Cobbis, I was on garden leave and that was my best year. <laughs> Jokes aside, you know, the garden leave actually did result in really a good, good garden produce. And we had, a, we had a really good season because I just had all my time out there. But yeah, no, it's, it, it goes up. It, it's, it's fresh air. It's away from devices. I play guitar. Coming to Music City and being backstage last night at the, the Grand Ole Opry. Oh, wow. And you see all these artists and they got the guitars. I'm desperate to go and pick up a guitar. I say, can I play? But then I realize I can't play that well. But I, I play guitar at home. Um, you know, the lever is family. I'm, you know, I've got a big family heart, I suppose. It's, you know, I've, I've had options before. But I've never traveled abroad for work, right? In 22 years, 21, 22 years. I could have gone to conferences, those things. You get invites. This is the first time I've gone away from home for longer than two nights, let alone going abroad. And I, I'm, I just miss my family. 
And it's because they're the ones that keep me level. My wife, my kids, I'm just dad. I'm, you know, I'm the husband, I'm a dad. And, you know, that's the role I want to be best at. And yeah, that keeps me grounded. And it's something I can relate. As you just told me that, I was just reflecting on, I'm exactly the same. I don't think I've been out for international business for a long, long time. This will be certainly one of the few times, if, if any. And, you know, what you just said about family and ground, it just, it just really connects to me because it's exactly the way I view life. Um, but before we let you go, I want to get one last piece of wisdom. Looking to the future generation of lawyers looking to come into the profession, because obviously, you know, they're going to look at your CV. They're going to look at where you're on now and go, wow, but we all have to start somewhere. You've been very humble and honest about your struggles as well and, you know, throughout your career journey. But what advice would you give to those who are interested in pursuing a career in law? And maybe when they get to that point, maybe it's early in their career or at some point in their career about setting up their own firm. Okay. So first thing is... It's graft and perseverance. I, I went to a university in London, uh, King's College. I got a 2-2 in 1999. I think over the two years, and those are the days you sent a lot of paper applications, I probably sent 180 applications to get a training contract. I had interviews, but eventually one came good. But I persevered. You know, I, uh, I hustled. And have the skill of hustling. You know, make your own destiny. You know, nothing's handed to you in this world. You've got to work hard for it. But I do believe if you work hard, you get, you get it back. The world's a good place. And as I've said before, immerse yourself in your subject. And if you think you can do something differently, once you've got enough experience to know that you can do something differently, don't be afraid to try. Uh, you know, if you're not happy, don't be afraid to try because we only get one shot at this life. And I'm not personally who likes to say what if. I'd rather have a go. You calculate your risk and you go ahead. And that's quite fitting, actually, as we, we come to close. Because I remember Jack Newton's uh, keynote last year where I was tuning in virtually. It's not what if, it's what is. What is this going to be? What, you know, and I just love that mindset. And that's great wisdom you've just shared. Um, Aaron, huge congratulations on everything you've achieved. I'm sure a lot of people who haven't quite come across you yet are going to want to know more about you and your firm. So where can they find out more about you, Tenant Law? Feel free to shout out on your website, links or social media handles. Uh, we'll also share them as episode two. Yeah, so I'm reasonably active. Not as active as you on LinkedIn. I wish I had your kind of following, but that's because you're so good. So LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, our website is uh, tenantlaw.com. .co.uk. We're pretty contactable. Just email me, text me. You've got my number on the website. I always love to chat. Whatever it is, I, I like to chat. I love human, human engagement. There you go, folks. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you. Congratulations on all the awards, and I look forward to seeing many more in the future, I'm sure. But now, from all of us on the show, over and out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, the Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com for the link to join our community there. Over and out.